Riches from the East by Father Bede Griffiths. Presentation 4, This World and the Absolute Reality. We're going to talk about the Tantra. He was speaking of Vedanta, and Tantra is the opposite movement, quite distinct from Vedanta, which grew up the time a little after Christ and permeated Hinduism, and modern Hinduism is very much a combination of Vedanta and Tantra. For convenience, I like to divide Hindu history into three periods, or four periods, of 1,000 years. The Vedic period is 1500 B.C. to 500 B.C., and that covers the Rig Veda, the Brahmanas, the Aranyakas, and the Upanishads, which come about 500, 600 B.C. And then the second period, that was a period of the Aryan invasion. This is the normal view, people dispute it today, but it holds, I think, still. This Aryan people, akin to the Greeks, Latins, others, invaded India in the second millennium, brought with them the Sanskrit language, the um, traditions of the Vedas, and the Vedic sacrifice, and settled in North India. And um, there, for a thousand years, that Vedic tradition was developed. And then they began to spread through South India, right through the whole continent, and the Dravidians, the Aryans and Dravidians, again, it's rather general, but Dravidians are the inhabitants of South India, the Tamils, where I am, um, they began to mix. And Hinduism is this wonderful blending of two opposite traditions. It so often happens. It's the meeting of opposites that creates something new. And um, so in the next period, 500 BC to 500 AD, we had the meeting of the two traditions. It's a period of the epics, the Ramayana, the Mahabharata. It's a period of the darshanas, the philosophies, the basic principles of philosophy were worked out. And it's a period of the laws, the asastras, which organize Hindu life right up to the present. So this was the meeting of those two traditions. And then, in the next period, 500 A.D. to 1500 A.D., you have the flowering of the Hindu culture, you see. All the great creative works come forth then, the doctors of Vedanta, and that is the period of the Tantras. And that is when the Aryan religion of the North encountered this Dravidian religion of the South. And what characterizes this is the worship of the Mother, and the whole feminine aspect of religion. And that is what I want to explore a little today, because the Tantra stands for all this feminine aspect of religion and the worship of the Great Mother. This worship of the Mother comes probably from Mesopotamia in the earlier millennia, 4,000 BC, 3,000. The Mother Goddess was dominant. It's a matriarchal society. And the Aryans were a patriarchal society. And so the two are opposites. And this Dravidian religion of South India, which may have been all over India, many people think, you see, that it was in the north and that the Aryans pushed it down to the south. But anyway, now, where I am in Tamil Nadu, the Tamils are almost pure Dravidians. They're quite different from the northern Aryans. Though, of course, a mixture has taken place in varying degrees all over India. And still in Tamil Nadu, 
The mother goddess is the prime object of worship. In all our villages, we will have, in our towns, we will have a temple of the mother, the Devi, uh, Mariama is her name usually. And very curiously, she's become the goddess of smallpox. I suppose, you see, smallpox was a terrible scourge in the villages and there was nothing you could do against it and it was the mother who brought the smallpox and the mother alone could cure it. And so smallpox, and I'm afraid even chickenpox today, is regarded as a touch of the mother. I visited a Brahmin house in our village once and they had a prayer corner as they usually do and there were all the gods and goddesses which they worship. And in the center was a picture of a little girl. And I asked what this was. And they said it was a girl who died of smallpox. She'd been touched by the mother. And she'd become a kind of saint, you see. <laughs> this is village religion, but it's really very instructive, you see, how this whole mother worship of the earth and then this encounter with disease and so on, all this is part of this religion of the mother. So this Dravidian religion has this basis in, in the feminine. And this calls us, I think, to reflect, you see, on the place of the feminine in our religion. And we have to accept the fact that Christianity and Judaism springs from a patriarchal culture, you see, which was a later culture. The earlier one was matriarchal, and now this is patriarchal. And that is why the only image we have of God is a masculine image. And when you reflect on it, it's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? See, the father, I named is masculine. The son, I named is masculine. And even the Holy Spirit, which is masculine in Latin, spiritus, is conceived as a he, you see. And that is very extraordinary when you reflect on it, you see. Because obviously God is both father and mother and neither father nor mother is the sex, obviously. But in Hinduism, God has always been both father and mother. And in the Rig Veda, even, you get these hymns where God is addressed as my father, my mother. And that goes right through the Hindu tradition. And I feel that today, we need to recover this feminine image of God, you see. Because God is his mother, is no less than father. And there is a a point of insertion of this feminine aspect, I mentioned in my book, The Marriage of East and West, that the Hebrew for spirit is Ruah, and Ruah is feminine. So always the spirit in the Old Testament has a feminine name, you see, Ruah. And in the Syriac tradition, to which I belong for a time, as I said, our word for Ruah was practically the same Ruah. Ruha was the spirit, and in the early Syriac, Christian Syriac literature, they speak of our mother, the Holy Spirit. That was in the first, second century. After that, the masculine takes over again, but we have a feminine base there. And the other one is the Hokmah, that's wisdom of the Old Testament. And that also is feminine, and in Greek, Sophia is feminine, in Latin, Sapientia is feminine. So there is a feminine word for God, you could say. And in the wisdom literature, you know, this wisdom is seen plain before God, and she issues out of the mouth of the Most High. She is truly a feminine aspect of God, you 
see that hotmark. So we have in our Christian tradition a feminine aspect of God, but it's never be hardly been developed. In later tradition, there are indications. The most famous, of course, is Julian of Norwich, the English mystic, who speaks of Jesus as our mother in a most touching way and sees him as feminine. And of course, uh, we must always remember that these things are never separate. Every being is both masculine and feminine. It's a question which is dominant. And there is obviously a very feminine character in Jesus. And also, we should remember that in the Old Testament, Yahweh is a very masculine God. But he also has his feminine side. A mother may forget her child, yet will I not forget thee. And perhaps the main difference between the father and the mother is the father stands for conditional love and the mother stands for unconditional love. You see, Yahweh's love is always conditional. If you obey my words and keep my commandments, then I will be God to you and I will care for you, you see. But it's always if. And the father has to challenge the child. See, the child has got to move out from the mother, face the world, and the father challenges the child. And so there's always a condition in his love. But the mother is unconditional love. In India, they always say when the father beats the child, he flies to the mother and she consoles him, you see. And so there is this aspect of unconditional love. And I think today we feel more and more the need of God as unconditional love. All the obstacles to God are on our side. God is not angry. God doesn't punish and so on. We refuse his love and we bring on ourselves the punishment. We bring on ourselves this suffering. But God himself is unconditional love, always seeking the love of man. So there is obviously a place for unconditional love in the Godhead. And the father is both father and mother. We can always address God as our mother. And then, as I said, Julian speaks of Jesus as our mother, and Jesus has the feminine side. The son is also daughter, in a sense. And it's interesting, you see, the wisdom is the feminine, comes from the mouth of the Most High. She is the word that comes forth as feminine. And in the Rig Veda, the word is feminine. It's a beautiful concept, very like our Logos, but it's a feminine figure, the word. And now we come to the Holy Spirit, and this is where I feel our theology really could develop in a very interesting way if we were trying to see the Holy Spirit as in particular the feminine aspect of God, that the word is, is masculine normally, is the expression of God's knowledge, and the, the spirit is feminine expression of God's love. And in the Syriac tradition, as I remember it, we spoke of the Holy Spirit as receiving from the Father and the Son. And to me, the character of the feminist is receptivity. The male is active and the female is receptive. And it's not a mere passivity, it's an active passivity, you see. That is receptivity. And uh, this, of course, links up with the Chinese concept of the yang and the yin. And I thought you might be interested, Joth Katra, in his book, The Turning Point, listed the characteristics of the yang and the yin in the Chinese tradition. And I think it may help us to see uh, how they stand. And these are the characteristics he gives. The yang is masculine, the yin is feminine. The yang is expansive, 
the yin is contracting. The yang is demanding, as I said, you see, conditional. The yin is conservative. The yang is aggressive. The yin is responsive. The yang is competitive. The yin is cooperative. The yang is rational. The yin is intuitive. The yang is analytic. The yin is synthetic. Obviously, there are two sides of the human nature, two sides of the brain, really, and both are necessary. But in our Western culture and in Christianity, we've developed the yang, and now we've reached the limit of the yang. And the Chinese say when the yang reaches its limit and it has to go to the limit, then spontaneously the yin begins to take over. And I think we've reached that point, you see. Our culture has developed more and more the yang to the absolute limit. The whole scientific mechanistic civilization is a product of the yang taken to its limit, and now the yin is moving in, you see. And we're moving into the more feminine age, the age of spirituality. And, you see, when we say that the spirit is receptive, I think we can apply it in the Godhead, really. You see, the spirit, the Father sends forth his word, and the spirit receives that word of God, as it were, into her womb. She receives that word, and she returns it in love, you see. She is the receptive aspect in the Trinity. And then in creation, she, the spirit, is that part of receptivity. You see, when Mary was to conceive a child, the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. And so she became receptive of the word, you see. And for all of us, as we open ourselves, the Holy Spirit, we become receptive of the Word of God. And in the beginning of creation, we're told, the Spirit of God brooded over the abyss. And she brought this receptivity into matter so that it could receive the Word, let there be light. You see, the Word comes and the chaos becomes a cosmos. But the Spirit is the part of receptivity. That is the, the feminine aspect in God, and its presence in the whole creation, you see. And every human being is feminine in relation to God. That is the tradition of all mysticism, practically, because we all have to be receptive of God. As I said, the spirit in us is a point of receptivity. You see, the, the psyche and is a part of activity, but at the, at the point of the spirit, we are receptive of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, everyone before God is receptive, is feminine. And today, I think, you see, we're learning more and more how to discover the feminine aspect in our nature. And every man, don't forget, and every woman is masculine and feminine. We all have both characteristics, but in the man, the yang, the masculine aspect, is dominant, and the, and the yin, the feminine, is, is late dormant, and the other... Uh, the woman, the feminine is dominant, and the, uh, the other is the polar opposite to it, you see. So always we have to unite the polar opposites. But we are discovering this need of the feminine. And of course, in the church, it's become a very serious problem that we see more and more how entirely masculine the whole structure of the church is. And we're trying gradually to find the place of the feminine in the church. And this point, in starting with the Trinity, you see, what has happened in the Catholic Church, of course, is all feminine aspects have been centered on Our Lady. And that is why there's such tremendous devotion to Mary in the Church, and particularly, you know, in India and, and places where the mother 
You see, in India, the God is more mother than father. And the devotion of Indian Catholics to Our Lady is overwhelming, you see. In fact, it's, it's almost absurd. If you go to an Indian town and ask for the Catholic Church, it's called the Mada Koville, the Mother Temple. <laughs> it's amazing. This feminine aspect, the feminine archetype, is realized in, for us in Mary. Well, that is a great blessing, and it means that that feminine power has been in the church all the time, and it's still a tremendous grace for us. But it's not sufficient. You see, the reason why St. Thomas Aquinas and the scholastics would not allow feminine in God was because they thought the feminine was purely passive, and there is no passivity in God. See, God can't be simply passive to something else. But of course, the feminine is not merely passive. It's an active passivity. See, it's a receptivity, which is a higher form of action, in a, in a sense, you see. So that there's no difficulty in allowing that God himself is feminine, you see, as well as masculine. And it's essential that we should do so, because it's not sufficient to see the feminine in a creature, however beautiful and perfect that creature is. The feminine is in God himself, you see, and we have to discover that feminine aspect in God. So that is rather our Christian attitude to this. In India, as I said, this feminine aspect of God was particularly in the Dravidian and South Indian and gave birth to this Tantra, but the two united, and the typical Hinduism has a really marvelous union of the masculine and the feminine, the Aryan and the Dravidian. And that took place, I said, in this millennium between 500 A.D. and 1500 A.D. The origin of the Tantra is very obscure. Like most of these things, you can't say exactly when they arose. But I think it arose from this tradition of the mother worship and particularly concern for the body and for matter and for nature. You see, in the Aryan tradition, the concentration was all on the spirit and the psychological development, how to receive the spirit. But matter was of very little importance. In fact, it's very revealing that in the early tradition of yoga, you have two principles, purusha and prakriti. Purusha is consciousness, spirit, and prakriti is nature, matter. And the object of yoga at the beginning was to separate purusha from prakriti. You had to separate your spirit, your consciousness from matter, from the body, and become a pure spirit. And then the body dropped away. The ideal was prakriti collapses altogether and disappears, and only purusha remains. Well, that's a very one-sided religion, you see. And so the tantra came to correct this one-sidedness. And it was a very ascetic religion, too. And by the way, this applies both to Hinduism and Buddhism. Tantra emerged in the early centuries of this era and penetrated both Hinduism and Buddhism. And it's very difficult to say which was first. Actually, it seems that the earliest tantric text we have is a third century Buddhist text. But it doesn't mean that it originated less in Buddhism. But what it does mean is that there was a new movement of discovery of the mother, the feminine aspect, and of the power, the shakti, in the body, in matter, in nature. This is the great discovery, this shakti, this power in nature, in matter, in the body, you see. And these people are called siddhas. And we still have them in Tamil Nadu today, the siddhas. And they have these powers, 
the psychic powers, you see. We'll go into that a little more. The Tantra is very much concerned with the psychic powers. And that is why it's had a very bad reputation, because it concentrates on matter, the body, and on sexuality, you see, which is a function of the body of nature. And in its later developments, the sexual aspect became very dominant, and in the 17th, 18th century, it was, had an extremely bad reputation. And there's always that uh, sort of mark on it. It's, it's a dangerous path, this Tantra. Uh, incidentally, I don't know whether you know that the man who made the Tantra known and made it respectable was Sir John Woodruff, an English judge in Calcutta. He was a Catholic, actually, but he spent most of his life in studying the tantric texts and was the first person to publish them and to translate them. You can still get them here. He wrote under the name of Arthur Avalon and he did a pioneer work which still remains fundamental actually. So tantra emerges from this siddha, this discovery of nature, of matter, of the body and of these powers. And what they said was that by which we fall is that by which we rise. As we fall through bodily nature, our appetites, our desires and emotions and so on, so it's through the body, through the appetites, through the desires that we have to return to God. You have to use your body and your senses and your feelings as a way to God. Great importance for us, because Christianity underwent much the same development. You see, we had originally, obviously, it's very rich in masculine and feminine. The New Testament are, are wonderfully uh, together. But uh, as it emerged into the Greco-Roman world with its patriarchal and its masculine character, the masculine element, the yang, was emphasized. And in the fathers of the desert, you see, you get this extreme asceticism and this enmity with the body, with the suppression of sex, you see and the diminishing of the feminine also. And so we've inherited a somewhat unbalanced tradition. It's only gradually now, really, that we're recovering the value of the body and the place of sexuality in the human being as an essential, integral part of our being, you see, which you can't get free from, which you have to either reject if you want to, but then it becomes a negative force, or you can indulge it, or you can sublimate it. It can become a power of energy, of life within you. In the past, I can't think of any time when sex has been seen as a means of union with God. And that is the tantric tradition, you see, that through the union of the male and the female, we come to the experience of God. And I think for Christian marriage, this is extremely important. So many people still think that sex is something rather degrading. We have to accept it. It's the only way you can have a child. But you just have to bear with it. But the idea that in marriage, you are called the man and the woman to unite in intercourse and through that union of the male and the female, physical, psychological, and spiritual, we realize ourselves in God. You see, that is a genuine Christian vision, but it's hardly ever been taught as a rule. In Christianity, we've got this very masculine, dominant character, and we're gradually today recovering the feminine and the tantric aspect, if you like. And so many methods now of meditation 
are emphasizing the place of the body, aren't they? In yoga, of course, it's obvious. We start with the body, and by training the body, you influence the mind. The mind is affected by the body. And for many Christians today, many Western people today, that is the only way in which they can find a balance, a harmony. We've overdeveloped the masculine, analytical, scientific mind, split it off from the feminine, the intuitive, the physical being, and we get a schizophrenic nature, you see, we're divided, and you get all these terrible repressions which people suffer from. It's very interesting that Tony DeMello, who wrote that book, The Song of a Bird, is about the leading spiritual guide in India today. He started a course for sadhana, and it was meant to be a course of spiritual guidance and discipline, but he found that practically everybody, mostly priests and nuns who came to him, had so many psychological problems, so many blocks in their unconscious, that it became a psychological course. He couldn't get onto the spiritual until he'd removed the blocks. And that I find again and again. We have to recognize that the human being is physical, psychological, and spiritual, and you cannot work through one alone. It's no good thinking that the spiritual can do everything. There are graces given sometimes in the spirit which heal the body, which heal the soul, but they're comparatively rare. And normally, unless you can get a certain psychological balance, you won't be able to realize yourself spiritually. And your psychological balance will depend a great deal on your physical balance, you see. So we have to treat ourselves as this composite being. And we must always be concerned with our body, with our soul, our psyche, and bringing the body and the soul under the guidance of the spirit. But you cannot neglect any one aspect, you see. We had, as I say, this very ascetic tradition in the Fathers of the Desert, but as I mentioned, St. Anthony brought that idea of discretion, and the Fathers had a very deep sense that you mustn't go to the extreme in this, or as St. Benedict, of course, canalized that. For him, discretion was the, the rule, really. And so in our Benedictine tradition, we've always had this discretion, but we've not yet had a positive aspect to the body, even to work. You see, St. Benedict says, uh, idleness is the enemy of the soul, so you must do some work. But work is not really a remedy for idleness. Work is the means by which we contact the nature, the world around us, and creatively transform the world, you see. So work is a yoga. It's a means of transforming ourselves by transforming the world. And so uh, we've not yet fully, you see, integrated the body and work into our tradition. And that, I feel, we have to do today. So this is the, the path of Tantra, you see, this discovery of the feminine, the mother, the discovery of the body and its powers, and how to transform the human being through the powers of the body, you see, and of nature. That is the, the path of Tantra. In this vision of Tantra, the chief place is played by the Shakti. And in the earlier tradition, you see the Supreme God in that second period after the Vedas, with the epics, Ramayana and, and Mahabharata, Shiva and Vishnu become the four, principal form of God. And they're both masculine, you see. And so there was a strong masculine element in the earlier tradition. And with the Tantra came the idea that the Shakti, the power, the feminine aspect, is more important. And 
it developed simply into a religion of Shaktism, of the worship of this mother energy, the mother nature, the energy in nature, in the body, in the feelings, you see. So it reverses that movement. Shaktism is one of the schools of Hinduism, and in that it's entirely mother worship and entirely tantric methods. And we have a very interesting community of Hindu devotees near to our ashram, and they're all women. They were founded by Swami Shivananda. Actually, you know, feminine communities are not too common among Hindus. And this was a rather pioneer group, and they're all women, except for the guru is a Shivananda disciple. And with them, it's entirely the worship of the mother, the Shakti. And in their images, the mother is there, radiant, and the gods are all at her feet. All the masculine people are at her feet. <laughs> and if a man goes there, we're allowed outside to look on, but only the women are allowed to go into it to see all the secrets. And uh, so that's a very interesting example, you see, of how the Shaktism can develop its own way. And I think an important one, but normally, it's not Shakti alone, it's Shiva and Shakti.